Four years ago, Labour was at an all-time low. Jeremy Corbyn had led the party to its worst general election defeat since 1935. I want to also make it clear that I will not lead the party in any future general election campaign. And Boris Johnson had led the Conservatives to a thumping victory. Thank you all, thank you all very much for coming. Well, my friends, good morning, everybody, my friends. Well, we did it. We did it. We pulled it off, didn't we? But four years is a very, very long time in politics. By 2022, Johnson was gone. And a few months later, Liz Truss had come and gone too. I recognise, though, given the situation, I cannot deliver the mandate on which I was elected by the Conservative Party. And now Keir Starmer is capturing safe Tory seat after safe Tory seat in by-elections across the country. He has not only won here, he's made history here. It's now very clear that the Labour Party is in as strong a position a year out from the next general election and the Conservatives in as weak a position as was the case in 1996. Armed with a consistently large lead in the opinion polls, Starmer's party looks closer to power than it has done for 13 long years. But with many voters effectively now looking over Rishi Sunak's shoulder, more and more people are asking a blunt question. What would Labour actually do? This special iPodcast series, Inside Labour's Plan for Power, is all about that question. While Reeves and Keir Starmer have started to sketch out their plans for government, for some, there's still a frustrating lack of answers. So we'll talk to independent experts about what Labour could do in office and to politicians about what it should do. And we'll hear from the people writing Labour policy and who'll sit in Starmer's first cabinet if he wins power. Our first episode is all about the economy. What would a Labour government mean for your taxes? How would it spend your money? Where would it find the money to fund public services? And how will it boost economic growth? Will Reeves signal now to the electorate that she'll have to do some unpopular things? Or will she wait until after an election? Most intriguing of all, just what would a Rachel Reeves Treasury look like? And what difference would it make she'd be Britain's first ever female Chancellor? I mean, I knew that she'd be a bit of an old boot, but I didn't realise that she'd be quite as uncompromising. Her actual approach, her responsible approach to macroeconomic policy matches the responsible approach to macroeconomic policy that Jeremy Hunt has. One of the things that Keir Starmer said in the, her conference speech was that they were going to spend one billion on getting more appointments in the NHS. So it sounds great, but these are teeny-weeny numbers. You've got to say where the money's coming from. Or if you don't do that, you're going to say what you're not doing. And then the problem there is people are going to start asking questions, why vote Labour? And we'll also hear from Rachel Reeves herself. You know that I was a chess player in my youth. It's like being on move 30 of a chess match when you're a rook ahead, but you're playing an opponent that usually beats you. Next Tuesday, all of you will go to the polls. We'll stand there in the polling place and make a decision. I think when you make that decision, it might be well if you would ask yourself, are you better off than you were four years ago? The questions people should ask themselves ahead of the next election are simple. Do you and your family feel better off than you did 13 years ago? The echo is obvious and deliberate. 
Ronald Reagan's simple but effective question from the 1980 US presidential election is the one Rachel Reeves is deploying right now to oust the Conservatives from office. And Reeves and Keir Starmer have gone big with their mission to get the highest sustained growth of the G7 group of leading nations, powered in part by radical planning reform to build more houses, wind farms and infrastructure. Some in Labour roll their eyes at that growth target. One old hand told me it repeated Sunak's error of making promises that were out of any politician's control. But everyone agrees that growth is much more than a GDP statistic. Paul Johnson is director of the Institute for Fiscal Studies. I think you need to think about it very much in terms of people's incomes, their living standards, their take-home pay. You know, in the end, the only reason we worry, we care about growth is because it is about our living standards. And without increased growth, we're not going to get increased living standards. And that's why over the last 15 years, and it's not just a UK problem, this, is a, this really is a Western world problem. Over the last 15 years, our living standards have barely changed. That's one of the reasons why the cost of living crisis hit people so hard, because normally recessions come off the back of growth. Well, this one's come off the back of not much growth. Yeah. So it really starts to hit people quite hard. Here's Peter Mandelson, the former business secretary under Blair and Brown. In 1997, we basically had to put our feet down on the economic accelerator. The country's economy was growing and we needed to you know, drive it forward with greater speed. Our economy is flatlining at the moment. We're not putting our feet down on the accelerator, re restarting the economy to all intents and purposes. Reeves tells me that growth is front and centre of everything she does. Growth is a concept that economists talk about, and I know sometimes it can sound a bit abstract, what that means for families and businesses. It means an ordinary working person has more money in their pocket to spend on the things that they want to do. It means the chance to save a bit more for a rainy day or to fulfil your dreams as a, as a family. It also means thriving local high streets and town centres, and it means looking forward to the future with hope rather than anxiety, which I think for too many people is the experience today. It also means if you're a business or an entrepreneur and you've got a great idea, that there's a way of realising it. It's hard not to see why growth is the lever all parties want to pull. After a global pandemic, high interest rates and wars in Europe and the Middle East, the next government faces a terrifyingly tight prospect of high debt and huge pressure on public spending. Ken Clark, the former Chancellor, says whoever takes over should prepare the country for the tough road ahead. We're not going to get out of our present financial crisis for at least two or three years, and that partly depends on whether the global economic crisis actually starts improving, because we're part of a global problem. But we're in a severe, severe crisis. People don't realise how bad it is. And whoever wins the next election, first two years will be a lot of tough, unpopular decisions actually tackling it. For Mandelson, part of the route to growth is to create smart industrial strategies, targeting key sectors like bioscience and clean tech manufacturing where the UK has an edge. But he's also clear that Britain's most important task is to cut red tape, taxes and risks for international firms that want to move here. We are not going to be able to compete in cash book capitalism, we're not going to be able to throw in the amounts of money that the United States or China or the European Union can do. We can do some of that. As I've said, we need to put have skin in the game as a government. We need to oil the wheels as a government. Uh, we need to reduce the risks for private investors and we have to create incentives. 
But let's not imagine that we are going to have the budget to compete. That's why we've got to compete in other areas. We've got to have the best taxation regime, the best regulatory regime. We've got to lower the costs of compliance by business with you know, all the box ticking that goes on. Uh, and in relation to the labour market as well. Torsten Bell, chief executive of the Resolution Foundation Think Tank, says that one of the biggest barriers to growth and productivity has been the sheer lack of private business investment under both the Tories and Labour. And while all the political talk is often about getting governments to spend, in the end, it's private investment that makes up 80% of our total investment in the UK. So what can government do to encourage companies to spend the cash reserves they've been sitting on for so long? Well, the thing that is fashionable to say at the moment, and it's understandably fashionable after the last 15 years we've lived through, is some stability would help, and that will encourage private investment in... Uh, my view is is that that's desirable, uh, but that's the bare minimum and stability on its own won't make that much difference to levels of business investment. And I say that because if you look at when business investment actually started to significantly fall in Britain, it was the early 2000s when politics was incredibly stable. You'll remember rather stonking majorities for Tony Blair and not a lot of opposition. The economy was so stable that Mervyn King was giving speeches about how we had a nice decade with you know nothing else going on and it was all great. So and it, but that's when investment fell. Bell says that an incoming government should tackle the underlying causes of that lack of investment, including the lack of large shareholders telling the UK's big companies to invest for the long term. And unlike in some European economies, there are no workers on boards. So. A reform agenda would focus on how do you make sure that managers have enough pressure from their owners, their shareholders and from their workers to make sure that we're investing in the future. And I think that would make a big difference, but it will take time. But Bell says that in the end, public investment, code for public spending, is just hard to get away from. And that has consequences for the public finances. We know we need to move into a higher investment future compared to the one we've been living through. Britain has particularly low investment, but even if we didn't, we would need to be stepping up our level of investment, partly because we'd at some point like this economy to grow, but also because we're all signed up to a net zero transition that is capital intensive. It's about investing today, replacing lots of our infrastructure so that we can save tomorrow cheaper cars to run and the rest of that requires a big increase in investment spending. Allowing that to happen is going to be one of the biggest challenges that a chancellor faces. Can we invest more with while also saving public services and not wanting to raise taxes significantly? That is going to be very hard indeed. Just how hard that is has been underlined by the fraught history of Labour's biggest investment pledge to date, spending £28 billion a year on its green prosperity plan. Although Keir Starmer told his conference he wanted to speed ahead with his plan to make the UK net zero by 2050, party sources have suggested it may take until the final year of a five-year term to ramp up to that annual figure. One shadow cabinet minister said it looked like the main aim was to avoid Tory attacks on more borrowing under Labour. Those comments were voiced up by an actor. Borrowing for investment still remains our biggest risk. Other countries are doing it but we have given a huge price tag to one policy without defining what it will deliver. You get the downside of having a massive number out there with none of the plus side about making it real for people. But for John McDonnell, Shadow Chancellor under Jeremy Corbyn, the trimming and tacking of the £28 is typical of the timidity, he says, will harm Labour in the long run. And he says the party just can't get away from the need to spend more. McDonnell recently did an analysis that concluded the cost of reversing Tory austerity cuts 
investing in the NHS and other services, would mean public spending needed to increase by £70 billion a year. But he calculated that even if economic growth was doubled to 2%, that would raise just £12 billion. Um, so there's a huge gap there. And the worry is this. Either Labour doesn't explain how it's going to tackle that gap, or it actually reduces its ambitions. So you've got to say where the money's coming from. Or if you don't do that, you're going to say what you're not doing. And then the problem there is people are going to start asking a question, why vote Labour? I keep quoting Harold Wilson, elections are won or lost by differential turnout. In other words, the people who stay at home. And they usually stay at home because they've looked at the polls and think it's all over, doesn't matter, I'm not worth bothering. Or they stay at home because they can't see the difference between the political parties and so why bother? And that's the danger of Labour is in. McDonald does offer a mayor culpa on his own spending plans in the past. You can, you can go too far in terms of promising the earth. And some people accuse me of that, actually. If you look at the 2019 election, it was a Brexit election. But actually, it's right. I was throwing policy after policy after policy, and it strained credibility. If you go too far the other way in saying very little, people think either you've got a hidden agenda or... They just think, well, what's the difference? Why bother voting? Meanwhile, the spending pressures on Labour mount up. I asked Torsten Bell of the Resolution Foundation what Reeves could do quickly to make an impact on living standards. I think you probably want a mixture of things that deal with some of the most egregious problems that we see causing problems for low and middle income households right now. So, for example, you might want one of your areas of focus to be on removing the two-child limit, which is seeing very high poverty rates right now for large families, including large working families. Then you're going to want to focus on one of the larger elements of inequality, which isn't just income inequality, but it's the quality of work being very unequal between high and low earners. So looking at the likes of sick pay and the security of your contracts to make sure that the quality of work is levelled up, as you might say, would also be important. The IFS's Paul Johnson also highlights the relatively small scale of Labour's commitments to date. I thought it was very striking. One of the things that Keir Starmer said in the conference speech was that they were going to spend one billion of the money of that money on getting more appointments in the NHS. Well, we just need a sense of perspective here. One billion in an NHS budget of 180 billion is next to nothing. And two million appointments in an NHS, which I think does uh, as 100 million outpatient appointments a year, is also next to nothing. So it sounds great, and it's better than nothing, arguably, but these are teeny-weeny numbers. And Johnson adds that there's no sign so far that Labour disagrees with the current spending review set out by the Tory government. The current government plan is to cut capital spending across the piece over the next um, period. I mean, that's certainly what's penciled into the budget red book. Outside of green investment, Labour, I think, has broadly signed up to the same plans. So that would see, in real terms, and certainly as a fraction of national income, capital spending fall, and even under Labour plans. For some in Labour, this all has echoes of the Blair-Brown playbook of the 1997 election, when the party vowed to stick to two years of tough Tory spending targets to prove to the public it could be trusted with their money. Ed Balls, the former cabinet minister and ex-aide to Gordon Brown, was in the thick of it at the time. While that pledge may have made political sense, did it cause problems once the party was in government? It's important to go back and you know, understand why we were doing this. And it wasn't only from the political signal. I mean, there is no doubt that Labour 
making the Banking of England independent, but also saying we're going to stick to tough public spending for the first two years because we don't think simply throwing money at every problem is the right way to do that and we'll be tough with your money. That, that definitely worked for us politically in the run-up to 1997. But in parallel to that, one of my jobs, in fact, my main job really for the whole of the 18 months before the election in 1997 was working on our policy programme. Ball spent two or three hours every week with Terry Burns, the Permanent Secretary of the Treasury, for a whole year before the general election, going through policy and process and dreaming up the idea of a comprehensive spending review to set multi-year budgets. The thinking behind the the, the place where the two-year spending freeze came from actually wasn't that political signal about toughness. It's really interesting when you think back on this. Nobody complained before the election Actually, nobody complained after the election. The comprehensive spending review was brilliant. People were coming along to this, these weekly cabinet committees, it was called PSX, to go through all of this detail. Nobody was banging the table and saying, this is all rubbish, I need my money now. They all took it really seriously. And so it did lay the foundations for the next 10 years and it gave us some confidence about how we were spending money. And I think it showed the civil service as well as the country, that it wasn't just about Labour throwing extra money at problems. Ken Clark admits that Labour's decision to adopt his tough spending plans worked a treat. Well, it was a very good political move by Tony and, and uh, Gordon, who were obviously set up uh, to win the election. But the only problem for them was that the Conservatives were well ahead on the, the economy and the opinion polls. They very cleverly stopped the economy being one of the main issues or an issue in the election by simply saying that they wouldn't change my policies. Of course, it's the issue of tax that has dogged Labour for the past 30 years. January 1992. Labour is so keen to get into power that they've been making lots of promises adding up the cost of all the promises Labour have made to date, it comes to an astonishing £35 billion extra a year. To pay for Labour's promises, the average taxpayer would end up being hit by an extra £1,000 tax bill. That Tory TV advert scared the living daylights out of the voters, who stuck with John Major over Neil Kinnock in the subsequent general election. It also scarred young politicians like Tony Blair and Gordon Brown from ever again setting out a shadow budget or leaving themselves open to tax attacks. But with Rishi Sunak's Conservatives having overseen what the IFS calls the biggest tax rise in history, freezing income tax thresholds that drag many more into paying, can any party think about yet more tax hikes? Well, if borrowing is more expensive and spending cuts look unpalatable, some in Labour think the party may inevitably have to look at raising taxes beyond the targeted policies already aimed at VAT on private school fees and on non-doms. John McDonnell is clear that's the only way to make the sums add up. While Reeves has ruled out a wealth tax levied on the very rich to help pay for it, he says she may have to implement something similar once she gets into office. One of the most critical periods is when that government's elected and it opens the books and it sees the critical position they're in, that gives them the opportunity to turn to the electorate and say, it's so bad, we need to go further and do more. And in that first year, I think, even if they don't do it immediately, I think they're going to have to, 
They're going to have to look at how you can properly fund our public services, how you can lift people out of poverty. And on the shelf, I want a range of policies like a wealth tax that they can reach for. Paul Johnson of the IFS says that there are undoubtedly areas like capital gains tax, business taxes, inheritance tax and even council tax that are all ripe for reform. Yeah, I mean, I think before you think about introducing a new wealth tax, let's try and make the ones that we've got work. If, if, you, if you own and live in a £100 million mansion in Westminster, you're still paying a lot less in cash terms in council tax than you would have been in rates 30 years ago, which is just you know, bizarre. So sorting out the council tax system so the very expensive properties are paying more than they are at the moment would be uh, a start. We have a, we have a tax on capital gains tax, that's entirely forgiven if you hold on to your uh, property until death. That's both unfair and inefficient. We have a, a million pound allowance within capital gains tax so that if you make money within your company, you only pay 10% on the capital gains, which is a large amount of money. There's a very small number of very wealthy people. And there are lots of things you could do to inheritance tax to make it work better. Torsten Bell agrees that there are plenty of examples of unfairness in the system. You can see those in the inheritance tax system. You can see those in some bits of our pensions tax system. So there's, there's lots of different things to look at. None of those are easy, but neither is not properly funding public services, which are, as everybody in Britain now knows, you know, having a pretty tough time. But Peter Mandelson is adamant that tax rises are a very bad luck for a Labour Party that wants to change the way it's viewed by the voters. If we go into the next election, you know, saying, look... We've got this very ambitious growth goal and it's going to be financed by taxing people more. I think that will send the wrong signal. I think it will send the wrong signal to voters, but just as importantly, it's going to send the wrong signal to the international investor uh, community. But equally importantly, I'm not absolutely sure it would increase the tax take uh, because people, as we well know, uh, the more you, uh, the greater your tax demands, uh, uh, the greater are people's determination and ability to sidestep them. So you may be cutting your nose to spite your face if you do that. Still, there are some within Labour who think that Reeves and Starmer have boxed themselves in too tightly on the issue of tax, talking about reducing the tax burden in a way that Gordon Brown always avoided. Others point out that Rishi Sunak's 54 billion freeze on tax thresholds is a tax bombshell bigger than anything Labour planned in the early 90s, and yet there's no populist uprising against it. And some in the party point out that there are plenty of ways of raising substantial sums from closing multiple tax loopholes something Treasury officials will already be pencilling in as options for ministers, whether Labour or Tory. Ken Clark is clear that a Chancellor has to box clever rather than be boxed in. The art of raising taxation is to pick pockets without the taxpayer noticing. And the way we do that here, I like to have a good wide variety of taxes. I, I invented a couple of new ones in insurance premium tax as well of mine. Uh, and so that people don't feel the blow too much in any one aspect of their lives. And what you should, I certainly would personally never went round ruling out uh, any particular move in any particular tax in advance of my budget. I made my mind up what was necessary and had a budget. I didn't have a fixation on taxation. Taxes sometimes have to go up, taxes sometimes have to go down. It depends on the needs of the macroeconomy and the public need. 
And yes, I, I raise taxes quite frequently and I cut some taxes. Uh, so, in, you know, for example, in my first budget, which was very popular, I increased the total tax burden on the country by uh, a greater amount than anybody since the war. Uh, but it was very popular because I wound up by taking a penny off income tax. But on tax, Reeves is nowhere near as relaxed as Ken Clark about the prospect of putting up taxes. No, taxes today are at a 70-year high in the UK. Taxes have gone up 24 times in the last 13 years under Conservative governments. It's one of the reasons why there is so much pressure on family finances, because more is taken in taxes, means less money to spend on the bills, on the food shop and the things that you know we like to do with our uh, friends and families. So I, I don't want the tax burden to, on working people to, to rise. You know, if anything, I would like that tax burden to be lower. But I've also been clear that all of our plans have got to be built on a platform of economic and fiscal responsibility. It's a Wednesday in Westminster and just off the Mall, leading to Buckingham Palace, the Institute for Government think tank is packed with the great and the good. The big draw is Rachel Reeves and the launch of her new book, The Women Who Made Modern Economics. Reeves is certainly the woman of the moment. From think tank soirees to city boardroom breakfasts, there's a palpable buzz whenever she enters a room. And for many, it will be her role as a woman running the economy that will be the big change. Here's Ed Balls, a veteran of the sometimes macho world of new labour in the 1990s. It's long overdue having a woman Chancellor Exchequer. If at a time of policy creativity or at a time of crisis where you've got to solve a problem immediately, like at the beginning of a pandemic, if the people in the room are men, then they will miss things which are actually about how this is going to affect and be seen and needs to be kind of focused on half the country. And so I think having a room of all men leads to bad policy. Jill Rutter, a former Treasury civil servant who now works at the Institute for Government, remembers that in the mid-1990s, the Treasury was a very male-dominated place. Certainly, in my time, in my time, it was. It was. Uh, it was. It was very much men with stay-at-home wives, actually, and it was sort of depended on. I remember our first ever female Treasury Minister, Gillian Shepherd, suddenly making some point about women, women who worked, and the sort of men around the table all rather surprised. But Rutter says that Reeves would be part of the new vanguard of change already happening in Whitehall. That was quite a long, uh, quite a long time ago. I mean, it used to be sort of irredeemably male as an institution. But if you look at the top ranks of the Treasury, it really is a department transformed. We haven't got a woman permanent secretary. We have three women second permanent secretaries at the Treasury. They've also proliferated second permanent secretaries, but Beth Russell, uh, Cat Little and Sam Samantha Beckett. Uh, some journalists even make mistakes and think Sam Beckett's a bloke, but she's a woman, she's Samantha, and she's the second woman chief economic advisor following Claire Lombardelli, who's gone off to do that job at the uh, OECD now. So, you know, whether we make the breakthrough to get a woman permanent secretary, there won't be that many male candidates lurking around next time we need a replacement. Reeves tells me she's certainly aware that she'd be making history simply by taking office. The position of Chancellor has existed now for 800 years and never in that 800-year history has a woman done the job. And there aren't actually now that many jobs that a woman has never done. But that is still one glass ceiling still to smash in the UK. And look, it'd be the privilege of my life, absolutely no doubt. She says a key mission will be to help other women through ending the gender pay gap, 
reintroducing a gender impact for budgets, and by focusing on the country's social infrastructure as much as its physical infrastructure. When chancellors go on visits, and prime ministers as well, to talk about the economy, the sort of usual uniform is you put on a high-vis jacket and a hard hat and you go to a building site because that is the economy. That is how you grow the economy. Well, actually, one of the biggest barriers uh, for women working is a lack of access to affordable childcare. So one of the things I argue in the book is this focus more on the everyday economy of family and place and work would be the emphasis I would have. And it's that kind of vision of a new economy, as well as the palpable sense of a politician on the edge of power, that was the most striking feature of that Institute for Government event. Crammed with politicians, academics and Whitehall officials from past and present, the audience was a veritable who's who of the last new Labour government. Dame Sharon White, former Treasury Second Permanent Secretary, summed up the mood when she joked, it's like the old gang is back. Guests packed not just one, but two overspill rooms, with a video feed for those who couldn't fit into the main hall. What they saw was perhaps the real Reeves, a mix of passion, self-confidence and humour not always seen on the airwaves. When asked whether her emphasis on fiscal discipline made her a right-winger, her reply was received loud and clear by the 11 Shadow Cabinet Ministers in the room, including Shadow Health Secretary Wes Streeting. You know, you've got to have fiscal discipline. It is the underpinning of everything else. You can have all the growth ideas and all the investment in the NHS ideas, Wesley, uh, (laughs) that you like, but it's got to be built on that platform of economic uh, stability, and it's great to see so many colleagues from the Shadow Cabinet here this evening. (laughs) Some of the success of the evening was punctured soon after, however, when Reeves faced a plagiarism row over her new book. She and the publisher had had to apologise for failure to properly identify that some sections written by researchers were lifted from Wikipedia or newspaper articles. The Tories didn't see the funny side and promptly accused her of being the cut-and-paste shadow chancellor. Even some sceptical Labour MPs privately mutter that Reeves has borrowed her biggest policy, that £28 a year spending on net zero, from Ed Miliband. But fresh from a personal endorsement by former Bank of England Governor Mark Carney at the Labour conference, overall the book launch carried a 1996-style vibe reminiscent of the days of Gordon Brown in his pomp in opposition. One former Brown aide told me that Reeves carries some of their old boss's intellectual weight, but with the added heft of actually being an economist by training. Jill Rutter says that Reeves's political clout is now as notable as that economic background. She is establishing herself as a really quite commanding presence in the Labour Party, and I thought that was the sort of big takeaway from the conference. I thought she was establishing herself as a real potential power player in the next government, um, partly because of her control on public spending, but also the place that's going to be sort of running this big sort of growth strategy. So it would be very, very interesting to see what she does. And of course, unlike quite a few of her predecessors, she actually does come with an economics background. Peter Mandelson certainly thinks Reeves could be a transformational politician. She's even tougher than I thought she was. I mean, I knew that she'd be a bit of an old boot, but I didn't realise that she'd be quite as uncompromising uh, in the way in which she develops policy, sees off her detractors and deals with her colleagues on some occasions too.
I ask if Rachel Reeves reminds him of his grandfather, Herbert Morrison, the former Deputy Prime Minister in Clement Attlee's 1945 government. He replies that she also has echoes of Ellen Wilkinson, the pioneering former Education Secretary who served under Attlee. She'll need a lot of uh, Herbert Morrison, uh, but also some of those really tough women uh, who were also in that uh, government. Um, the Ellen Wilkinsons and others of this world. She she's sculpted very much from uh, you know their mould. She's going to be very good. Even Ken Clark appears to be a fan. And have you been impressed by Rachel Reeves so far? Yes. It's a party that worries me. <laughs> well, it's always true in both cases, actually. But uh, if, if, we just, if it was just Jamie Hunt and uh, Rachel Reeves, then I don't think either of the parties would worry me very much. I say I don't think they disagree on very much. They do, of course, politically. I do myself disagree with some of Rachel's political views, I'm sure. Her actual approach, her responsible approach to macroeconomic policy is, sort of matches the responsible approach to macroeconomic policy that Jeremy Hunt has, which is in the present shambles of British international politics and the dangers of it, I find rather reassuring about the only thing I do find reassuring about this election that's coming up. Speaking of fiscal responsibility, remember this? But I'm not going to cut the additional rate of tax today, Mr Speaker. I'm going to abolish it altogether. From April the 23rd, we will have a a single higher rate of income tax of 40%. Mr. Speaker, I have been very clear that I am. Mr. Speaker, that I am sorry and that I have made mistakes. But the right thing to do in those circumstances is to make changes After the chaos of Kwasi Kwarteng and Liz Truss's short, disastrous reign, the public may be wary of radical change. While many in Labour respect and admire Reeves, some worry she risks overcorrecting for the Truss era and may be unwilling to exploit even a big Labour majority to do possibly unpopular things. One senior former aide told me that they worry her caution will leave Labour exposed in the next election campaign, which, unlike the short, sharp campaigns of 2017 and 2019, could be many weeks long. Unless the party has something to talk about, its opponents will gladly fill the vacuum with attack lines of their own, they say. Given her famously careful approach to politics, policy wonks, big business chiefs and even her own fellow MPs are often reduced to guessing about the exact mix of tax, spend and borrowing she'll eventually come up with. On the one hand, it seems her instincts are to go big, with a windfall tax and that £28 billion a year investment plan for net zero. But on the other, her tax and spend plans so far look relatively small scale. She wants to be friendly to business, but is convinced that globalisation has failed working people. And she wants more goods made in Britain. So I asked her, just how much more of her plans will we see before polling day? Well, we've got another year or so until the election. We've also got probably another uh, two fiscal reports from the Office of Budget Responsibility. So we're not going to set out everything at this stage because... I do not want to make any promises that we can't keep. So we need to know the state of the books um, that we're going to be inheriting when we uh, come into office. Some independent experts believe that Rachel Reeves is playing a more strategic game and that she may want to be remembered as a tax-reforming Chancellor rather than a tax-raising Chancellor. Here's Jill Rutter. I think the really interesting question for me 
is, you know, not so much what do they say before the election, but because, you know, I think it's, you know, caution first, second and third before the election, not say, trying massively to avoid saying anything very interesting. But I think the really interesting thing would be maybe it's going to be her first Mansion House speech or her first May's lecture where we get, you know, some idea of whether Rachel Reeves wants to be a really big reforming chancellor. Uh, not that easy to raise taxes much more, but a lot of people would say that the British tax system is crying out for some decent reform. And there are so many, you know, and normally she's already said she's going to look at a lot of the tax reliefs that we're bound up with. But, you know, if I was director of the IFS or something, I'd be saying, can you not sort out property taxation? You know, there are loads of areas where you think the UK tax system really needs a sort of thoroughgoing look and set of reforms and maybe a bold or emboldened chancellor or maybe a chancellor who will get in and say the books are just so much worse than even we thought looking in, which is what chancellors almost invariably say, on day one would say, and now we actually have to really sort this out for the long term. And I think it'd be really interesting whether Rachel Reeves has big aspirations to go down not just as the you know not just in history as the first female chancellor but as a really significant reforming chancellor the like of which we probably haven't really seen since Nigel Lawson Rutter says that whereas George Osborne made a big success in introducing the office of budget responsibility his office for tax simplification simply died a death but Reeves could revive it in the guise of an office for tax reform we may see a proliferation of institutional change because the one thing about institutional change is it costs peanuts and you can announce it straight away. It's more than 30 years since Bill Clinton beat George Bush in the 1992 presidential election, powered by that famous message to his campaign team. It's the economy, stupid. It's often forgotten that message was only the second item on the list pinned up on a wall in Clinton's HQ. The first message was change v more of the same. Ed Balls, who these days teams up with George Osborne for their own political currency podcast, says that although times are very different now, a feeling of hope is vital to winning a majority. Well, I think in 97, there was a lot of, of optimism and a feeling that things can get better. And um, I mean, that has its sort of its risks, but you do want to have that sense of optimism. And I've talked about this with George Osborne recently on our podcast. You know, the, when he and David Cameron went out to depress expectations in 2009, Tend to tell people it's going to be really hard to start talking about some of the tough things they were going to do. And I think that that was quite a dent to optimism. It probably stopped them getting a majority in 2010. So what you do in, in advance is really important. And that combination of realism and optimism is, a, is the sweet spot you're trying to get to. Balls also says it's important to have a sense of driving mission and to signal it well before you arrive in office. There's no doubt that the, the start is really important because you signal change. You start to um, externally make people start to kind of judge you on different metrics, but internally it has, it, has a, it has a massive impact. Because the civil service engages and is enthusiasm about a government with drive and direction. The Treasury loves a powerful chancellor with a view about what they're going to change, and much more than debating what the particular changes are, because that's the politician's job. Ken Clark's advice is to take the difficult decisions early and to argue your case. 
when you're a minister in a difficult department, not just Chancellor V. Shecker, but others like health and education, your responsibility is to take tough and difficult decisions. Your responsibility is to not bother about tomorrow morning's Daily Mail. It is to look two or three years ahead and decide what is in the national interest. And remember why you came into politics, you know, might you be able to make a bit of a difference that will benefit the community in future, future years. And the main thing you have to deliver as Chancellor is, in the medium term, successful results from your policy. You have to do what is necessary. Well, what you need is some sort of political skill in explaining what you're doing, defending what you're doing, promising that it, trying to set out what you think the results are, just argue the damn case and answer your critics. What is daft is to go into an election promising that you're going to cut this tax, cut that tax, uh, what you're going to do on spending on a particular subject. You have no idea what events will do. You have no idea what factual situation you'll be facing in two years' time. You don't really know for sure what you'll be facing in 12 months' time. So is Reeves too haunted by ghosts of the past, both friendly and unfriendly, to focus on her own path? Her allies say that the lessons of 92, of 97, and of every election since then are being learned, but that she's very much her own person, with her eyes fixed firmly on the future, not on looking back. Paul Johnson of the IFS says that a focus on the long term would be a nice change. I think the key thing that a new government needs to do is really take the at least the five-year period and probably you know, think about where we want to be in 10 years' time and do things in a gradual way, certainly not cut and then increase, but think about where we want to be in a longer time, yeah. time frame. And after the disruption of the past few years, Torsten Bell believes it's possible to square the public's desire for stability with a desire for change. So the exam question isn't, can something big and radical be done? I think an incremental approach that's clear about what the overall strategy is, which in my book would be measures that raise growth, particularly through investment, and measures which make the country more equal. Yes, in the benefit system, but also in the world of um, work and with housing, focusing on those and staying focused on them over years with, you, if you want to call it incremental, I would call it sustained change. That is what a proper government trying to actually change the country looks like. So I don't think the tension, it's not, you know, radical or bust. I'll tell you what's radical is being incremental year after year after year. So something actually changes. That sounds exactly like the path Reeves may end up choosing. Well, stability would be change uh, uh, because we haven't had stability these last 13 years. We've chopped and changed so many times that it is very difficult for families and businesses to prepare for the future. And that would be a big change under a Labour government led by Keir Starmer and with the um, the Charter for Fiscal Responsibility, the rules for, um, for public spending that I've set out that I would enforce with iron discipline. That is a big change from the past. But also, you know, frankly, a government that offers some hope. Our plans for growth will mean more money in the pockets of working families, more opportunities for businesses. And then as that money starts to come in, more money for our public services to rebuild them after the 13 years of failing to invest in our schools and our hospitals. Many in Labour think that Rishi Sunak has made a big strategic error in claiming he's now the changemaker the country needs. Would Reeves have been more worried if he'd stuck to a 1992 strategy, saying he's missed the stability and change with Labour is a risk not worth taking? 
Well, that was his strategy for the first year uh, to say, after Liz Truss, I am stability. Quite hard when so many of your ministers also served under Liz Truss and quite hard when you're still pursuing quite a lot of the policies that Liz Truss pursued. So he's now trying something different, which is to claim he's a change. Well, there's one thing I think that the whole country can agree with, that we do need change. I think the idea that Rishi Sunak and his tired government can offer that change, frankly, is, is, is for the birds. But that acceptance that the country needs change is something that I can absolutely buy into. And the bigger the majority, the better chance you've got of having the time to do it? Look, we're fighting for every single vote. In 2019, it was our worst election defeat since 1935. But, yeah, I do feel that we are on the cusp of, of achieving something quite remarkable, but no vote has been cast. There's absolutely no complacency. I think I uh, compared it recently, you know, that I was a chess player in my youth. It's like being on move 30 of a chess match when you're a rook ahead, but you're playing a, an opponent that usually beats you. So we're doing well. People do see that it, it's time for change, but we've got to seal that deal next year with the electorate. For some, Reeves's chess strategy at times looks hidden, not just from the Tories, but from her party and from the voters. Persuading the public that they'll be better off with Labour could be enough to get Reeves into the Treasury. But it may be that we'll only really find out what her party would do once she's in office. Thanks for listening to the iPodcast, Labour's Plan for Power. Next time, we'll look at the party's plans for the NHS. There are problems across our system. And I think the thing that makes the current situation so hard for any government is that it is the whole system rather than one bit of the system. And it's the whole system that they will need to pay attention to. This podcast was produced by Albert Evans and edited by Julia Webster. <laughs>